Podcast 54 of The Outsiders brought to you by the Macintosh Group at REMAX River City. I'm Bryn Griffiths and joined by Robin Brownlee. Hello, Robin. How you doing, man? So we are officially Car 54. Where are you in our podcast uh, Ooh, segment? You're going to send a lot of our listeners to Google on that one. Car 54, where are you? I don't even, I barely remember that show. I think, uh, really? we, yeah, wasn't Fred Gwynn in that show? Like, uh, like, I think so. And who was the blonde guy? Milner? Uh, uh, actor? Uh, yeah. I, no, are we thinking of the same show? I think Car 54, Where Are You, was a comedy back in the 50s, if I'm not mistaken. Are you thinking about, uh, were you thinking of Martin Milner? That was a different show, wasn't it? Martin Milner, that's it. Martin you are old. Yeah, I know I am. That's been <laughs> well, it's been well documented around this house. All the jokes, mm-hmm. all the jokes at this house suddenly have become dad jokes. I've noticed, and I, I'm prepared to accept that. What a sure. show! I I have a strong suspicion we're going to set a new record for the length of our podcast today because our guest will be Jack Michaels, who is the play-by-play voice of the Edmonton Oilers, not only on radio but on television. Looking forward to this one. Well, I tell you what. You know, Jack's had an interesting journey here, and now he's been around. I think this is like season number 11. So, you know, he comes in after uh, and grabs the mic from somebody named Rod Phillips. His journey here, the dynamic of coming here to Edmonton uh, after Rod's 37-year run, yeah, um, I'd imagine he's got a few things to say about that. And also, let's not forget, we got to pick his brain about some other sports as well because uh, he is a sports fan when he's not a sports announcer working the mic. Correct. And we'll get to his Euler thoughts toward the end, but I, I am interested in his story off the top. So we'll we'll get to that in a little bit. Got to talk about COVID. The Oilers are scheduled to take on the Vancouver Canucks on Friday. This is part of the weirdness of this schedule. They're going to play in Vancouver on Friday night and then in Winnipeg on the Saturday mm-hmm. night. That is, you're going to learn a lot about the Edmonton Oilers by how they handle the most important of the two games, which in my estimation is the Saturday game. But that's a long haul because you're going from, uh, that's a three three time zone shift and they have to do it overnight. So they'll be leaving Vancouver probably around, uh, I'm guessing probably around 1130, which is already 230 in the morning Winnipeg time. They're going to be getting in at almost six in the morning in Winnipeg for what I think is a huge game against the Jets. Yeah, I tell and I tell you what, that huge game against the Jets uh, can go a long way in deciding uh, what's going to happen in that North Division. Um, 
the road to the Stanley Cup used to lead through Winnipeg uh, for the Oilers. Yes. Uh, back, back in the 80s, there were some good Winnipeg teams that didn't get to play for anything because they ran into the Oilers uh, early along. And, you know, right now, is anybody going to catch Toronto? Mm, I don't know. Um, is Montreal going to climb up and catch uh, Edmonton? Or Winnipeg, I'm not sure. So maybe we got a little preview action going on here. You and I were chatting weeks, months ago about the fact that I, I was a believer that the Ottawa Senators were really going to F it up for a few teams down the stretch. The Toronto Maple Leafs found out that if you're not ready to play the Ottawa Senators, you're going to get mm-hmm. beat. And a lot of teams have found that out. The only team that has not had any trouble with the Ottawa Senators is the Edmonton Oilers. And I think the thing that I've been really surprised at is how a lot of fans are discounting that. They're looking at the fact that, well, they're supposed to beat the Ottawa Senators. Well, if it was that easy, everybody else would be doing it. The Ottawa Senators might single-handedly be the reason why the Calgary Flames aren't in the postseason, Robin. Mm-hmm. No, you know what? They're no joke. They're a young team uh, that's going to get better. They lack, uh, you know, they lack some aspects. They lack uh, real solid veterans who can help the kids along, but uh, they've got some young talent there. This Stutzla kid, uh, Kachuk, you know, they're going to be just fine. And like you said, you look at their record aside from the uh, taking the collar against the Oilers in those nine games, it's not putting them in the playoffs, but it's a lot better than uh, they look when you factor in that 0 for 9. I do like the way the Kachuk boys play the game. They uh, they throw it all in there, and they throw it all out there. But I, I'm starting to think that Brady might end up being the more the more of a monster than Matthew when it comes to the Kachuks. He just, every time I watch him now with the Senators, he seems to be able to raise his game another notch, and I can see it coming. But it just scares me to think that he might be the most dominant of the two. Are you seeing it the same way? I, you know what? I like him. He stays away uh, from some of the extracurricular stuff uh, that Matthew gets involved in yeah. because Matthew Matthew runs his mouth a little bit. And he, but you know what? He shows up to back it up. Sure. Um, they're both. You tell you what? Both those kids. I'm trying blanket statement, but I don't think I'm far off. Both those kids, if they're not there now, I think are close to being. Uh, top four forwards uh, on any team in the National Hockey League. They're that nice combination of skill and uh, sandpaper and, and in, in Matt's case, like I said, got a little bit of a mouth on him. And hey, and so did Dad. Oh, and yeah. Dad was a heck of a player. So uh, chips off the old block are the uh, Kachuk boys. Hey, you know, I, I, I think when I think back to uh, to dad in that particular situation and I was on the Winnipeg Jet broadcast and the Jets had just drafted him. And I remember being at the Boston Garden doing a broadcast with Kurt Keelback and to get into the radio broadcast section at the Garden, you had to crawl through a hole Yep, because you went underneath these seats. And so you, like I remember being down on my hands and knees to crawl and you went to the light and then you'd just pop up in what was called the bucket, and you did your broadcast. And I remember, I remember that uh, that Keith had to do the same thing to get to our broadcast location from the area, 
and was just so thrilled to be on this Winnipeg Jet broadcast. And not only that, he was uh, having an opportunity to be interviewed on a Winnipeg broadcast from an arena that he just admired so much. But you want to talk about those two boys? They uh, they are definitely a chip off the old block. We'll we'll see how their careers develop, but uh, I'm I'm impressed with both of them in a lot of ways. Whether you love them or hate them on the ice. Did you freeze up, Robin? What's that? Are you froze up there for a second? I thought you were just letting me have my point. Oh, I was just posing for a selfie. Um, you know what? It's funny. Many years ago, and I recall this, it, uh, the Oilers in Winnipeg and it involved Tyler Wright. And at that point, there was a scrum or a, an FU contest uh, after the whistle. And, and Waltz taunt to Tyler Wright, who was probably there on the league minimum if he even made the team at that point, he just kept repeating six million, six million, which is what he was making at the time, which was huge coin at that time. Yes. So they, they come by the gift of the gab, honestly. <laughs> okay. Hey, and by the way, and we'd have to take a look at this. The last time the Oilers and the Jets played in the postseason, was that 1990? I'm trying. I can't think of them another matchup because we know that they left for Arizona in the middle of the '90s. But I just, uh, I, um, I'm trying to remember if if it was. I was at the last, the last, uh, the last time they played would have been at the Winnipeg Arena, and that would have been Game Six of that series. That was the one that really propelled the Edmonton Oilers toward a Stanley Cup that year. But we'll have to take a look back on it. Hey, listen, we know we're going to go along with Jack. Is there anything you really want to touch on before we get going here? No, I'm all good, man. Okay, well then let's uh, let's save some stuff for the end of this. And when we come back, we will be chatting with uh, the voice on television and radio of the Edmonton Oilers, Jack Michaels. Don't forget, too, The Outsiders is brought to you by the McIntosh Group at REMAX River City. You know, with the single-family median home sales prices on the rise, and the ridiculously low interest rates, this is a great time to trade your current home for a larger one. And uh, perhaps your household is feeling a little small because of your current family size. Well, the, uh, the team at the McIntosh Group at REMAX River City can assist you with the sale. And, uh, you know, and maybe they can help you find the next superstar home, too. So if you'd like to give them a shout, give them a call. 780-464-0075. Or you can t- get in touch with them at macintoshgroup.ca. But you can start the process with a complimentary evaluation of your current home. No obligation, by the way, and no deadline for this offer. Just don't let the market pass you by. The Edmonton market right now in particular is doing quite well. I did a podcast with Brent not long ago, and they were talking with them in Vancouver and out in the Oakville area, just outside of Toronto, and those markets are unbelievably red hot right now. So who knows? We're going through a tough time. There's no denying that with COVID. But people right now are definitely wanting to be either a buyer or a seller when it comes to home. So anyway, get a hold of Brent and any of his team at the McIntosh Group at REMAX River City. Once again, 780-464-0075. Jack Michaels of the Edmonton Oilers radio and television broadcast is up next. And down the stretch we come.
I know I've been saying this for a while, but we've been meaning to get this guy on for the longest time. And for some reason, we just haven't. But we get him on now. And he is the voice of the Edmonton Oilers, Jack Michaels. How you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Finally, you are late. I'm not going to let you off the hook for that. That was a thank you. That was a token apology at best. Well, let's talk about uh, let's talk about you before we start getting into some of the other stuff. How did you? My favorite subject. How did you get started doing this? Like, what drove you to this? Was there? Was there uh, somebody you watched on TV? For me, it might have been Howard Cosell or somebody like that. Uh, Danny Gallivan, who I loved. But do you have anybody or a particular moment that drove you to doing play-by-play? Well, I mean, to be honest with you, like most of us, my particular moment that drove me to do this occurred on the athletic playing field when I realized that uh, a future as an athlete was not happening. I mean, I, that is one thing that makes me relatively boring on this subject is I, I think I have the same answer as all of us, like uh, frustrated, you know, intramural athlete at best. Uh, but in terms of announcing, there, there's a couple things I remember. Number one, in my neck of the woods, Western Pennsylvania, I think Mike Lang is every bit as revered as Rod Phillips is in, in this area. I mean, he, he was just a legend and he still is. I mean, he's still doing a, a part-time schedule and it wasn't for what he's known, you know, around these parts. He, it wasn't because he did Michael, Michael motorcycle and all that crap. It was because he could call a game. I'm just 10 or 12 minutes of uninterrupted play by play. And back then that's what it was. There weren't a ton of whistles. Now they called some more whistles along the boards for frozen pucks and that kind of thing. But you could get a lot of continuous play-by-play, and I, I thought I thought Mike Lang was the best at that, stringing one coherent sentence after another, and then finish it off on the Penguins Television Network. I mean, that is definitely like part of me. I mean, I I, I remember watching that, thinking this guy is awesome. Uh, and then you know, two other guys for me were watching the old, you know, and I was I was kind of post his time. But even back then, NBC used to redo some fights with with Howard on it. And I, I thought Cosell had a grasp of the language that, that rivaled my dad. My dad was an English professor. And and then the other guy for me, and, and it really affects how I how I call a game in terms of how I feel hockey should be ordered. And that was uh, Dave Johnson, the great play-by-play announcer for the Triple Crown races on ABC in the States. Uh, for much of the 1980s and even a little bit into the early 1990s. So those were my three kind of announcing guys. I didn't necessarily look up to them. I, I, didn't, I wasn't an idol guy or anything like that. But that at least gave me an idea of, hey, this is what the industry is all about. Hey, l- let me just, let's break that down a little bit here because I always hear people say, I could do play-by-play. And I still remember my very first game at the University of Alberta, and I thought I could. And then about three minutes into the first period, I realized there is way more to this than this. There's breathing. There's word at it. There's all, I mean, you, we could list off a million things, but do you remember your very first game? Play by play? Yeah. It would have been, it would have been at Ithaca College in upstate New York. I, I don't remember it. What I do remember, and this will, you know, this, along with my love of wrestling, explains my, uh, you know, superb dating record. 
uh, in the late 1980s. But <laughs> I remember my dad catching me. And I was. I was kind of embarrassed. Uh, this is not going where you might think it is. I was taping myself recalling the 1989 Preakness. And that was Sunday Silence and Easy Goer. And it was more of an, more an imitation than me calling it. But I do remember making that tape and my dad showing up. I think he'd been out playing tennis. And he came up and he goes, what are you doing? And I was like covering up the tape recording because I was embarrassed. Like what kind of, what kind of loser sits there and tapes himself calling a horse race? Like, and I, you know, I was probably 13. I mean, you know, so not necessarily something you're real proud of at the time. You know, we're, we're all kind of at that time in our lives growing up and nervous about everything we're doing. And I do remember doing that though. And he, I think he later found it and goes, you know, that was pretty good. You know, he, he kind of gave me a compliment. Nice. And I was like, shut up dad and ran outside the play or something. But yeah, I do remember doing that. I don't remember the first game I did at Ithaca, which would have been my first real like play-by-play of an event. I don't remember what sport it was. Jack, a, a couple things ring true for me. Um, first, there's absolutely nothing wrong with figuring out that uh, your future in athletics might be uh, calling the play-by-play as opposed to actually doing it. I recall a, a, a kid who was pretty good uh, – uh, when he started out in sports only because he was bigger than everybody else. And as everybody got better, he didn't. And he, I thought, well, maybe J school, if I can't do sports, I can at least write about them. So very much the same. And when you talk about getting caught by your dad, I've got some old VHS tape from a Kamloops Blazers alumni tournament before he ever got into the business of Daryl Ray calling play-by-play into the end of his golf club like a microphone. He might have been, oh, geez, Razor was still in pro then. He might have been 23 or 24 years old at that point. So, I mean, look, if you're drawn to it and you can do it, you end up with that kind of job uh, that you really want to do, that you've thought about all your life. I look back at what I know about your journey here, you know, I look at the Alaska Aces. I see a a gig as a sports reporter in Erie, Pennsylvania back in 1993. You you took a relatively long road here. I mean, some guys retire now when they're behind a microphone if they're an athlete in five minutes, let alone five years or 15 years. Long road, and it wasn't always an easy road. Um, How do you hang on to that dream when it still hasn't broken for you? Well, I mean, the biggest thing, the biggest thing about a long road is it shows a lack of talent. (laughs) You know, if you're, if you're talented, you don't take, I mean, trust me, I wish I could have made it a much shorter road. I didn't intend to, but you know, what, what I found is, you know, you just, if you like doing what you're doing, you grind away. I mean, my first professional job, I was making $4 and 25 cents an hour. Uh, I worked, I crawled into my local radio station after being rejected for, you know, numerous jobs. And then trust me, the rejections didn't stop there. Uh, and, and latched on, I got four twenty five an hour and they paid me $25 for a box cell phone report for high school football. That was a report, not play by play. 
they would pay me 75 bucks for play-by-play and 50 for color. And, you know, it was all high school stuff for the most part. Uh, I did manage to get some college basketball, but D3 in the States. So, I mean, again, bottom of the barrel. Uh, and I got a regular gig as their basketball play-by-play announcer. And then the hockey came in. We had a uh, local high school team. Even when I was in high school, they were a contender for the state championship on an annual basis. And how they did it in Pennsylvania was they would play the Western final, Western PA final at the Igloo and the Eastern Pennsylvania final at the Spectrum. And then the winners would meet on a neutral site for the state championship game. And it was a Western final that I called. It was a two o'clock game that they would do it the same way in Philly too. Two o'clock in Pittsburgh, and then the Penguins and Flyers would play the second half of the doubleheader at seven. Well, this game goes double overtime, and so Mike Lang and Matt McConnell, who now has, I mean, he's had a bunch of jobs in between. He's now uh, play-by-play for the Arizona Coyotes on TV, and they're, they're setting up waiting to do the game. Mike Lang's by this time doing TV, and Matt McConnell's the radio guy for the Penguins. And you know, after the game was over, uh, both of them separately came up to me and said, Hey, you know, who are you? Like, I mean, and I was 22 years old or whatever, 23, maybe. And they said, what do you, you know, they and they asked me what you did, you know, what, what are you doing? What's your goal? What's your, what's your kind of thing? And I, I told them, I, you know, and of course being a Western Pennsylvania kid, the first thing out of my mouth was, well, I do college basketball and football and da, 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 da. And they're like, well, no, but like, what, what about hockey? And I'm like, oh, I, you know, I do this uh, high school hockey team. They're going to the state championship game. And both of them, like in the same conversation said, no, no, you should be focusing on hockey. I didn't know anything about minor pro before that. Now I would come to learn everything there is about minor pro, but it would be like a Canadian kid growing up in Canada and not knowing anything about the AJ or the Western Hockey League. I, I didn't know minor pro. I didn't, we even had a team for a while. You can look it up. There used to be the Erie Golden Blades, and I'm sure there are plenty of players on there that you guys have heard of. Sure. But I didn't go to any of those games. I, I just didn't follow it. I was still in the mindset of most American kids. I'm going to do – my goal is to, you know, be calling the Super Bowl and calling football and calling this. and You know, I just didn't – I didn't have, you know, I was a Penguin fan, but that doesn't mean I was thinking I was going to do hockey. And sure enough, that summer I sent out uh, some some tapes and got a job in uh, Colorado Springs in the old West Coast Hockey League. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the most notable name that I can think of right off the top, my second coach was a guy by the name of Al Peterson from Fort Saskatchewan right down the road here. Played uh, number 41 on those Bruins teams that lost to the Oilers. I think he played on the 88 and the 90 team that lost to the Oilers. And uh, away I went. And the Colorado team folded up in the middle of the summer. I had two choices. I could either go to Anchorage, Alaska, or Greenville, South Carolina. When you grow up in the Northeast, your first goal in life is not necessarily live in the South. So I went to, I, w- I, w- I took a chance and went to Alaska. The best move I ever made. They got new ownership. Uh, some good coaches in there, including a future NHL coach. 
uh, in Davis Payne, and the team had success. And as the team had success, my role started expanding. I started doing more TV in addition to radio. And the other thing the team allowed me to do is, is get in every aspect of the business. So I was the governor for the team. I'd go to the league meetings. I'd do the schedule, uh, you know, did all the, you know, marketing and sales. So when I arrived at my job interview in Edmonton, they were quite frankly fascinated by some of the things I had done outside of broadcasting. And in fact, one of those conversations was, uh, you know, I kind of, they were asking me what I did on the sales side. And, you know, I, you know, I said, I oh, had to get creative in the minors. I mean, we had the keys to the game by a funeral home. And they said, well, wait a minute, what? Explain that. And uh, I said, what? explain what? And they're like, no, go back to the funeral home. You had a funeral home as your keys to the game sponsor? How did you uh, throw that together? And I said, well, I went to a couple locksmiths and they didn't want it. So I came up with a keys to bearing that night's opponent. And, and look, I've had a lot of interviews and a ton of rejections. I got, I got stacks of them, but that was the moment in the interview where I was like, you know what? I might have a shot here. Their expressions changed. And, uh, you know, I, I just, like I said, I had never set foot in Alberta ever. I mean, I had been to, I had been to Victoria, British Columbia, and Toronto. That was the extent of my experience in Canada. Now, I had watched the Oilers growing up. I loved them because, and Robin knows the story, I hated the Bruins and the Flyers. When you grow up as a Penguins fan, yeah. those are the two teams you hate. You know, And I'm, I'm not embarrassed to admit, when Ulfie puts the hit on Cam Neely, we're doing shots. I mean, you know... <laughs> I, I mean, sorry, like, I, I was a Penguin fan. Like, I knew that was the end of the series right there. Um, and, and but, you know, a, a bipartisan of that was I, I kind of got into the Oilers because I loved seeing them beat the teams that I hated. And the other thing is it always extended my bedtime if I sold it the right way. And I was. I was fascinated. ESPN would, uh, you know, again, in the States, and this is a different experience than you guys had, but they would show the iced over Northlands Coliseum and it'd be in the middle of May and sure enough, there'd be a storm or something. And I was just fascinated. I mean, at that time, Edmonton might as well have been on Neptune. All I knew is it was allowing me to stay up later and the games were great because I saw some of those Edmonton Calgary second half of the double header that they would put on there. And in the States, maybe not more than 10,000 people were watching, but I was one of them. Hey, okay, so before we get to how you got to the Oilers in, in that situation, you got to take the skill set you have, but then you have to inject that personality that you have. And I always remember having a conversation with a legend in this town, Brian Hall, who said, Brinster, what you got to do is take your personality times 10. The problem with that is a lot of people aren't going to like it, and a lot of people are going to love it. Don't, don't worry about the people who don't love it. Just be yourself times 10, and you will go places. Your personality comes through on every broadcast. I love it. I think it's great. And you also, you came in and took over from Rod Phillips, who had a very strong personality and a very strong call as well. You could not come into a situation here, a shrinking violet by any stretch of the imagination. But when did you start to realize that here's your skill set, but if you add the personality, you can go from here to here? You know, and Robin might have more insight on this than I do. 
in the sense that I, in my opinion, I don't feel I'm much different. You know, if you see me on the media bus, if you see me at Rexall, you know, and you could probably even tell in this conversation, because I just realized I probably covered like 15 years and just kept going and never shut up and never gave you guys a chance to comment. That's just, I don't think I have 10 times the personality on the air. There are people who, I don't know that they disagree with that. I don't feel like, you know, I don't, I don't feel like I have a radio voice. I don't feel like I have a radio personality. I just feel like I'm kind of who I am. And you're, I mean, the one thing I totally agree with is, yeah, I haven't, I haven't really worried about not liking because I, I don't know of any announcer who is universally and by universally, I mean 100 out of 100 will like, I I don't, I don't know of anyone like that. I, I, not even Bob Cole, not even Danny Gallivan. There are people who say, Oh, you know, they were washed up or what, whatever. I mean, people, the inherent nature of our job. And I think it's part of sports writing as well. Not everyone's going to like, and, and if you can't take that, you're in the wrong business. You, you, it, I mean, I know that, you know, I knew that day one of this job. I knew that day one, you know, when I was on the college radio stations, not everyone's going to like you. Uh, and so it was very easy for me to come here. And, and really, I calculated in my head, look, Edmonton at that time could have hired, if they had wanted to, thrown a ton of money, whatever. Someone would have taken that job, whether it be Chris Cuthbert or name a Canadian sports personality. They could have somehow fashioned it. But you know what? He still wouldn't have been Rod Phillips. Like, there's still a segment of the population who said, I don't know why they did that. Like, yeah. he's not Rod. Yeah. So I think it actually benefited me. And and it, it somehow minimized the difference. It wasn't the American or the Pittsburgh or the or – the, it was, well, he's not Rod. Well, yeah, that's true. I'm not Rod, but so are 10,000 other guys. I actually think it worked to my advantage. And I know it worked to my advantage when it came to the Oilers hiring for the position because they had never done it before. Because even Rod's hiring predates even guys, you know, even Robin. Robin doesn't remember how they hired Rod. I, I have a story. Rod raised his hand and said, I'll do the game. Like they had never hired for the position. And I think that helped bring me into the fray. Cause if you've never done something before, you're not going to be closed minded. Well, we're not going to, you know, we're going to hire from this segment of the population or we're going to, I, you know what? I want to hire this type of guy or gal, but when you've never done it, you're looking at everybody. Yeah. And then the other thing that helps there, in my opinion, I think the word Alaska on my resume helps. You know why? Because they're like, I have got to listen to this guy. From Alaska? I've got, I, I, I just got to listen to him. Now, he may be brutal, but then as it gets further along in the process, I become the Alaska guy. And so now I have an identity already. And I think that helped me in the hiring process. I don't know this for sure. But I think it brought a little cachet to my candidacy that no one else had. Mystery Alaska. Hmm. A little bit, for yeah. sure. I mean, to this day, if you you know, if you meet someone from a 
you know, a fairly exotic place. You're like, you're from where? You know, I mean, <laughs> it, it's a conversation starter. I tell my kids for the rest of their life, they've got a conversation starter. They were born in Anchorage, Alaska. And you know what? If they end up somewhere else, they can also say, oh, I was born in Alaska, raised in Edmonton. What? You know, that's a conversation starter. <laughs> Who, I, I mean, even you guys, name on, on more than one hand the guys you know that move south to Edmonton. <laughs> yeah. And, and, I, and I worked in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. That still gets brought up for people. It's just, that's, a good, that's a good conversation starter, too. Uh, I love it. it it's here. I mean, these are exotic places. I'll tell you what, Jack, I want to chime in on some of the stuff you've said, because again, it, it rings a bell with me. First of all, it's not so much for me, the Alaska thing. It's any play by play guy that has a shot of him uh, with Steven Tyler beside him. Uh, <laughs> yeah, what's with that? As an old rock and roll guy that grabs my attention. What was that about? What was it? Where, where was that photo from? He, from Anchorage, Alaska for about seven or eight years. I think, I, I think they relatively recently broke up. He had a girlfriend who was from Anchorage, Alaska. I mean, for a long time, like I, I maybe even 10 years. He, I don't think they ever got married, but he had a significant girlfriend who was from Anchorage and he ended up uh, being in town one time and wanted to take in a hockey game. As you guys know, he's a Boston guy, and uh, and my owner ensured that he came up and did a period of play-by-play. I didn't even ask for it. I I came back from the first intermission, and he was sitting in my chair. <laughs> and instead of asking him to move over, I actually grabbed the guest headset and threw it on. <laughs> you know, that's that that's a cool story. Look, I want to touch base on the on the Rod Phillips stuff and, and the style thing. Um, you know, I sat beside Rod for a long time on that plane and I was looking for all kinds of reasons to not like whoever replaced Rod just because they were replacing Rod. Exactly. Um, and I think a lot of people were in that boat, Robin. And, you know, when I listen to you, I'll say this, Jack, and I, I don't know that I ever thought I would say this. I think there are similarities in the bill, the way the emotion builds in your call. And trust me, this is from somebody who loves broadcasting. I used to buy the, the, the sets of great broadcasting moments and listen to them. I could never be a great broadcaster. I never had what it took, but I knew what I liked. I just couldn't, I, I just couldn't do it myself. But the thing about Rod was that, right from the gut emotion in his calls. In fact, if you listen to a lot of his best calls or most famous calls, it's not perfect broadcasting. His voice will break. Uh, It'll crack. I'm thinking one of the last things, you've probably listened to it, him describing Alish Hemsky's goal against Detroit in 2006. It's just, you can just hear him. And if you know him, you can feel it. You're a lot slicker when I listen, and and that's not and that's a compliment. You've got certain things you go back to, whether it's to end a game, end a period, uh, the overtime call where you you draw it out. It's a little Rod was sort of more off the cuff, but it's the same. It's the same end result when that crescendo comes. Honestly, more times than not, you hit it out of the park, and is that. 
how do you do that? Because it's not easy. Well, it, it's funny because, and a lot of people say, you know, well, it, it, you know, is it is it a call that you think of going into the game? And to be honest with you, I don't, this may sound ridiculous, and a lot of people won't believe me or, or think that it's disingenuous. But for me, it's not so much a signature call. It's a cheat. It's actually one of the same reasons I go to Oilers Radio Network. Uh, it, 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 that call, um, overtime, it, it gives me a finish line. It'll, it's a cheat. It's a cheat code. It, it gets me to the finish. And because as you can tell, I have a tendency, I'm great at starting and continuing, but sometimes once you get me going, you want to, you know, that, that Kathy doll, you want to just break it, you know, stop, stop enough. I've got it. And so it's a cheat for me. It, it's a punctuation mark. So it's kind of like uh, a way to wrap it up concisely. And I think that's the biggest thing as a broadcaster is you're always looking to say it in a few words less. And so if I have something a crutch, for lack of a better word, it, it puts an end to the sentence. And um, everything else I think is kind of natural and there's going to be degrees of calls. I don't say, you know, shoots, he scores every time because there's so many pucks that are tipped and redirected. That to me is contrived. If you force, you know, describing something that, especially in hockey does not happen the same way. I mean, you know, I find that in football crossing the goal line looks very similar uh, in hockey, hardly any of the goals. I mean, yeah, th- there's just not many wrist shots to beat goalies anymore. They, they get there in different ways. And that. so um, for, for me, my calls, and if I have a signature call, it's, it's more of a cheat code than anything else. And, and the follow-up on what you said about Rod's emotion, I do get wrapped up in the game. I, I kind of, I tend to lose what I'm, what everything else is going around me. I, I get wrapped up. I've, I've become a, a fan, a glorified fan. I'm into the game. I, I don't care what else is going on except the game. I'm wrapped up in it. And, you know, try as I might, I, I, your objectivity is, you know, marginal. I mean, I, it's funny. I, I get called a homer a lot more than I thought I would have been. Um, and, uh, I, I feel like, cause when you're, when you're trained in broadcasting in America, I imagine in Canada too, you're really like neutrality is drilled into you. And so even though you're the Oilers announcer, I, you know, I don't want to rely on all the refs screwed us or, or, you know, that's ah, a shame the other team won, or that was a lucky goal, but you know, there is a difference in the way I, I call the goals. And it's probably just because neutrality is pointless when you're a team announcer. Hey, the, uh, the other thing, too, that, that I want to touch on, because it, it does yeah. go along with what you're saying here, Jack, and that is I love having done a little bit of play-by-play, nothing at the level you're at, but I love hearing you gearing up the car, the sports car, in the final two yeah. minutes of a game, and I can hear it. I can hear That's you shifting. That's the horse race. 
Yeah, yeah. That's the horse racing influence. Yeah, for me. exactly. And down the stretch they come, obviously, is, a, is you know, to me, that I love hearing homage. that. Yeah, absolutely. That's an homage for sure. And, um, and it, it just popped out one of these times. And But that's, I, I, you don't call a horse race on the backstretch the way you do, you know, in the final. And I feel hockey's the same way. And the luck, the luckiest thing I have at my disposal in hockey is I think far more than the other three sports. It's so often you've got a one goal game or a tied game in the last two minutes. Yeah, and and that's why I think hockey in the regular season is just more interesting. Is because there's not too many twenty point games in hockey. There's not too many games where it. It crawls now. The other night was five nothing, you know, Calgary. So you know, but there's not too many of those. There, there's a lot of two one, three two, two two, and that's the inherent nature of the game. Um, there's less blowouts, and so I feel that there's a horse racing analogy that that does that does make a, a little sense there. And um, I just can't help but get swept. I mean, it's the most exciting for me. The last two or three minutes of a one-goal game or a tied game in hockey, uh, it, number one, it's the most exciting element of the game, and number two, we're we're thankful enough to have it more often than not. I mean, in hockey, you get that probably, I don't know, half the time. Yeah, I mean, it's awesome. It's awesome. Jack, you mix in. You talk about the horse racing. You mix in more than horse racing, and I got to say, it's one of the things I enjoy about your call. And I want to touch base with you on your interest in some other sports, but one obvious influence is boxing. I have never once seen an NHL play-by-play guy call fights with the detail that you do. It might as well be, you know, Hagler Hearns as pick the two guys fighting. You do it with great gusto when you seem to enjoy it. Where's that from? That That's, you just answered your own. I mean, it's from boxing. That's hundred percent from boxing. Uh, I, I was a huge boxing guy growing up. Um, my second grade teacher, uh, Brenda Rudler, third grade, sorry, third grade teacher, Brenda Rudler was dating boom, boom, Mancini. Uh, and he, she was dating him when that tragic accident happened on CBS. Uh, against Duke Kukin in uh-huh. 1982. Yeah. Um, so, but, I mean, that wasn't my only connection. I mean, my dad was a huge fight fan. I mean, he, he you know, he couldn't afford a ticket, but he went to the closed circuit of Ali Frazier one. I mean, he was a huge fight fan. He saw uh, Benny Kidd Perrette die on national television at the hands of, uh, I think it was Emil Griffith uh, in the early 60s. Um, but I was a massive boxing fan. And you mentioned Hagler Hearns. Uh, the heavyweight division want, wasn't what it once was when I first started watching boxing, but I had the middleweight to carry me through. And then Mike Tyson came in. And for that brief moment in time, heavyweight boxing was back. And I actually did an internship for HBO Sports in college. Uh, I was at a Riddick Bow. I went to a Riddick Bow fight. I went to a James Lights Out Tony fight. I mean, I. So I was a huge boxing guy and I'm not to that degree anymore just because, I mean, I watched Mayweather duck his way out of, you know, what would have been the best fights for mo- for most of his career. I, it's harder and harder to put together 
a super fight in the in the 2000s. They're trying to get back to that now because I think they they've recognized some lost opportunities. But that's where that comes from. I was a huge boxing guy. To this day, I still, you know, when Hagler died the other day, I I spent half the day on YouTube watching some of my favorite fights. Hey, what about the you tennis know, thing? I got to get to the tennis thing too here because I've Wimbledon has always been on my on my bucket list, and it's one of the few last things left. You've been right, yeah. How was four that? times? How was that? It was awesome. My my favorite day was uh, here's here's the amazing thing about Wimbledon is there's an Oilers fan that I was introduced to after a playoff game in 2017. And that Oiler fan is from Spruce Grove, and that Oiler fan was the head groundskeeper at Wimbledon. Really? I mean, you talk about an unbelievable hookup. It, it remains my bet. Like when people say, oh, I've got connections here, that was my best connection. Because I, I all of a sudden went from, hey, you know, great to meet you, blah, 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 to, hey, uh, do you need your lawn mowed? Do you need your house painted? Do you need, like, you name it, I'll do it. I mean, he's a great guy. We remain friends to this day. But, uh, you know, I got a hook up there and, and taking a picture with my dad on center court. is I, I know I gave him a great day. And uh, when you're an only child and, and you get to share that with your dad, and he was, a, you know, a huge tennis fan. And, again, part of it is me growing up when I did. Mm-hmm. I grew up right in the tennis boom. And both you guys remember it. You were, no offense, but a bit older. But. You both remember, I mean, Borg, yeah. McEnroe, Connors, you know, at least in the States, and I assume it was in Canada too, uh, that's when tennis was never more popular than it was from about 78 to 84. Right. I mean, it just, it was the sport. And and uh, that's when I was a little kid. And, and, and you know, and, and so I, I got into the sport. I've followed it ever since. I play it recreationally, though not well. You know who's a good tennis player? Uh, we've had some good battles on the court as Louis DeBrus, and you you find out what being a professional athlete really is because that dude is, I mean, he can play for three hours. I mean, it's amazing. You you forget that these are still professional athletes. They've still got an unbelievable reservoir of energy. Um, so yeah, huge tennis fan, and uh, and that's where that came from. Growing up in the in the heart of the you know McEnroe, Connors, Borg era. No. Now, Jack, you mentioned the, the, the generation gap here, and, and yeah, there is one. For me, the and I know there's going to be different names now because much time has passed. For me growing up, the two best players on the planet were uh, Jimmy Connors and Billie Jean King. Yep. Um, who, who are the best all-time on both sides for you? I would say, I mean, tennis is one of those where it's hard to compare eras mm-hmm. because the the athleticism and the training is just next level. Uh, I, you know, and, and I don't think she plays the kind of beautiful game that was once played. I mean, for years I would have said Navratilova. I think Serena blows her off the court with sheer power. I really do. I, I think Serena, I think Serena plays the game at a level of power and and still with enough finesse at the net that we just haven't 
just haven't seen it. I, I mean, her serve is just devastating. And and Navratilova had that great lefty serve. I, I'm sorry, Serena's serve is just you you can't beat it. The men's side is is really difficult for me because I'm a massive Federer fan. Um, I think you know, much as I'm loath to say it. The rackets have some impact. I mean, you mentioned Jimmy Connors. That T2000 is the smallest sweet spot ever. I mean, Federer finally went to a bigger racket because his sweet his sweet spot was small compared to some of the other players they're using. I, I would, at this point, still say in terms of the most dominant three years, which is, which is kind of what you have to do in tennis to some degree, I would still give a slight lean toward Federer uh, in the sense that he was blowing his opponents off the court uh, in a way. I mean, I remember, I remember he beat Andy Roddick in an Australian Open semifinal, and they asked Roddick what what chance does the guy have in the final, and he he said, "I'm not saying it because I'm a sore loser, but he's got no chance. He's got no chance." I mean. You don't you don't hear that about Djokovic. You don't hear that about Nadal. Although no one will ever beat Nadal at the French Open, I'm convinced of that. Right. I mean, no one's going to beat him. I know he lost. I know he's lost two matches. He's never lost two at his peak. Sorry, it's never going to happen. He's never going to lose this. Uh, I cast a very shaky vote. Very shaky vote for Federer. Okay. Um, and that's bias. That's bias. Hey. Serena, I was, I, look, I, I think Martina did it better than Billie Jean. I think Serena's done it better than Martina. Three years ago, I was in Mexico, and it, this is a tennis death for me, even though it doesn't really technically qualify. But I remember moping for a full day on the beach when I heard that Dick Enberg had passed away. And for me, and you take a look at American broadcasters, Dick Enberg could do everything. You know, he just yeah. seemed like he could do, he would be probably one of my idols in sports broadcasting because it didn't matter whether or not he was doing golf and he did that. He could do tennis. He could do football. He could do everything. That one really kind of hurt me, but growing up watching with my mom, who was a big tennis person watching Wimbledon and he had Dick Enberg and Bud Collins was another guy. They knew when to talk, when to shut up and when to just go, Oh my. I mean, it was amazing. It was an amazing time. Yeah. Dick Enberg. I mean, you know, he started out voice of UCLA basketball yep. and the great John Wooden team. Yep. And, uh, and then, um, the LA Rams, uh, you know, he, he did a bunch of NFL films. That's the other thing we haven't really talked about in terms of influences on me is I was a huge NFL film guy. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've watched all the old stuff. I, John Facenda for me is a, is a guy that isn't talked about it. And, and I know it's, voice of God and there's more parody than it is but I'm telling you for me growing up that was that was my voice of the NFL was John Facetta yeah. I mean I I'm sorry but I'll I'll never you know and that and that's the one thing I that's the one thing I'll say right now and it, it's important and it's something we don't talk about it enough in terms of the quality of voice and Rod Phillips his quality of voice it's always going to be more pleasant to listen to than mine. He's got a beautiful voice. Rod Phillips has a magnificent voice. Bob Cole has a magnificent voice. You know, there are some things you cannot control as a broadcaster. 
Bob Cole and Rod Phillips have two of the best voices of all time. I'm not taking away from their talent. Their natural voices are just better than mine and and 95% of everyone else, 99% of everyone else. I mean, I'm not even, you know, I'm in the middle of the pack as far as voice. I mean, you ask my kids, you ask my wife. I mean, these nasal tones are tough to listen to. But but Rod and, and Bob, I mean, just powerful voices. John Facenda, Dick Enberg had a great voice. I mean, some of it is just your sheer vocal quality. And uh, that's where I think um, in this country, Rod and, and Bob Cole really stick out for me. It's just beautiful voice. Jack, this will be a tough one because you're into so many sports. Uh, as a listener, not a talker, though, is there one or two or even three, if it's that many, calls of events that are absolutely burned into Al your Michael. brain? Huh? Al Michaels. That's the that's the first sporting event I can remember watching, and you know my dad grew up in the '60s. Uh, he's a professor. I mean, by trade, he's retired now. Uh, my mom's an artist, so you can imagine which side of the political spectrum I would be raised in, and you can imagine that my parents weren't always, you know, flag carrying patriots. That is the one time I can remember, you know, my dad kind of beaming with pride about being an American. And what, that's the first sporting event I can remember watching. Um, you know, America was not in a good place at that time. It's funny, even now I get, I get a little missed. I mean, that was, for Americans, it, it is hard uh, to... It's hard to put anything close to that. I mean, it was, that was unbelievable. And an experience I'll never, ever, ever forget. Uh, And that's coming from, you know, again, a guy who hasn't always thought his country uh, conducted itself in the greatest of, greatest of ways. Um, The other thing is uh, she is gone. Vin Scully, 88, Kirk Gibson. Um, Oh, yeah. That's another beautiful voice. I mean, that's another that's another guy so far in the stratosphere. It does no good to, you know, I want to be Vince Gall. I mean, come on. Not a chance. Not a chance. I mean, you know, in a, in a uh, position all to himself. Uh, so that's two. That's a big two. Yeah, and then, and then the other one for me, Robin, would be, you know, down goes Frazier. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, there's there's not going to be another boxing call like that ever, ever. So those are three that, that immediately uh, come to mind. And, yeah. um, you know, Al Michaels, Vin Scully, Howard Cosell, I'll take that triumvirate against anybody. You, you know what's the amazing part about the, the Gibson home run, too, is, and we've timed it, that the fact that Vin didn't say a word for almost a minute and 40 seconds, he let the yep. crowd say it all. He just... Shut he up and get out of the way. Oh, he was just a master at mixing silence with speaking. It was just... It, he was... Summerall was great at that, oh, too. Yeah. yeah. Sims, touchdown, Giants. 
You know, that's your call. That's your call. And and his, you talk about another voice that I mean, though another Pat Summerall's voice. Oh my God, I I'm instantly one thousand percent more palatable to anyone with Pat Summerall's voice. Huh. <laughs> I'll, I'll t- you know what's what, what's funny, Jack? You, you do the and and, and Bryn mentioned him too. Uh, you got to be a certain age to appreciate Cosell. And that call was very straightforward because all he did was repeat himself. It's funny. I was down in Vegas covering the Tyson-Bruno fight while I was writing boxing at the Journal. Which one? The first or the second? The second one at the at the uh, MGM Grand Garden. So when he regained the title. Yep. Yeah. I, uh, I'm in the can having a leak. I look to my right. It's Charlie Sheen. I look to my left. It's Joe Frazier. Oh wow! This was in the. I mean, I wasn't. A, I was there covering the fight, but the VIPs and the and right. some of the media were sharing the can. Yeah. Um, and I, I, you know, you're nervous, right? Like I'm look. I, I'm looking at Joe Frazier. I think, geez, he's a small guy. I mean, it was later in his life, but I, I can't believe I did this. I gave the lamest, the lamest from across the room, down goes Frazier routine. And he just looks at me, and for a second, he's giving me the straight face. And I literally almost shot myself at that point because I thought he was coming. I thought he was coming up. And he smiled, and he came over, and he laughed. He says, you know, you got any idea how many times I heard that? That wasn't bad. So, um, yeah, it's funny that would be one of your calls. That was right in my wheelhouse, too, because I remember Cosell. I remember the bad hair piece as much as I do yep. the voice or what he called. But you want to talk about a tandem through history, Howard Cosell and Muhammad Ali. Yeah, wow. absolutely. And it, Cosell's call the Foreman-Frazier fight, and it's interesting because, as you rightfully point out, I mean, Cosell's you know, rise to – fame un, unparalleled. I mean, we'll never see a sportscaster achieve that level of fame, ever. I mean, Howard Cosell, at that point, at least in the United States, and again, I, I, I'm only speaking from the U.S., but in the late 70s, Howard Cosell was probably one of the three most famous people in the country. And he was a sportscaster. And, and Ali, there's a, there's a clip, I, and there's some great shows. If, if you guys are interested, I can tell you, NFL Films actually did a documentary on Cosell. And it, there's some stuff in there with Ali that is just magnificent. Mm-hmm. But his Foreman Frazier call is on there. And I consider that the best the best call, edging Michaels on Hagler Hearns. But that's the best call in the history of sports for a fight. You watch those two rounds and you're, you're ready to watch 10 more championship fights. You uh, you did not mention the band is coming out onto the field, which was another uh, classic moment too. <laughs> well, I wasn't I wasn't born in the western half of the United States. I mean that that's the one thing I can vouch for, you know. And I I get a kick out of it when I'm here, and obviously everyone jokingly refers to Toronto as the global capital of the world. I got to be honest with you, you know, growing up just north of Pittsburgh, south of Erie. You know, it is amazing. Anything west of Cleveland was the west. You know, when I got that job in Colorado Springs I was telling you about, I kept telling people I'm moving out west. It's not really west. You've got 13 hours to California from Colorado. 
but it, it, uh, so I definitely grew up with those, with those blinders on. Like I said, I mean, no concept, especially as a kid or in high school of where Edmonton actually was just no concept. And again, being born back there. And it wasn't just like West, as I told you, like when you grow up in the Northeast, you're not in a rush to move to places like South Carolina and Alabama. And you just, that's, that's not you, you know, there's a reason they call us Yankees. Hey, <laughs> I, uh, I got to ask though about the family and settling into a Canadian market. And while, you know, the kids get a fair chunk of Canadiana while they're here, they got to also remember where the roots are from. How's that whole experience gone for your family just settling in here? You know what? Their their roots are here. I mean, my kids were six and not quite four when they moved here. Okay. Uh, so, I mean, you know, yeah, they, they were born in Alaska, but I mean, especially my son, any memory he gives you is full of it. I mean, he, you know, he, he grew up here. He played 10 bits hockey and, and, and off we go. Um, and I, and when I talk to them now as 14 and 16 year olds, they talk about that. I mean, my son is, as, uh, you know, is pursuing his Canadian citizenship. Um, and I, I'm not sure my daughter's not going to follow suit. Uh, so I think they've been raised by American parents, uh, who of course have their roots and, and, uh, a good chunk of their lives in America, I was in, you know, my wife and I were in our mid thirties when we moved here, but they're, they're, uh, they're Canadian. I mean, and, uh, I think a lot of people, believe it or not, are, are quite surprised to find out that they are American. And, 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 you know, I take it as a huge compliment when people are still surprised to find out that I'm American. Um, and I've, I've long kind of, there's, it's, it's funny. It's a duality on that you do find out how stupid you were about, you know, Canada. I, I, I confess to having some of that Simpsons mentality of America junior. I didn't realize how different the countries were. And I, I fully admit that I, I, I did it. I, I should have, but I did it. I, I didn't necessarily, I mean, here's how stupid I am. I didn't necessarily perceive moving to Canada as, as moving to a foreign country. Now you guys will think, how dumb can you, but I just didn't, I don't think Americans view Canadians as, as, you know, foreigners. I I don't, I I never saw it that way. I never rooted, you know, if, if Canada played Russia, I rooted for Canada. I never rooted like against Canada. I never saw them as, as rivals. Not as I, not necessarily to say that I saw Canada as some sort of stepchild. I just saw it as more of a, an amalgamation. I was shocked when I had no credit when I moved up here. I, I told the American Express person, can't you just click the flag? You know, I've got hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of credit. All you've got to do is click that flag in the top right corner. And they're like, that's not how it works. I mean, I came up here and they wanted to give me a $500 limit on my credit card. I said, what am I, 12 years old applying for a Discover card? Like, what are you talking about? Um, so the ignorance of, of what I was getting into, but having lived here, I can also say, I still don't think we're that different. I, you know, I don't, I don't find the people that different. I've lived in both places. I feel like I'm uniquely qualified to 
to say that I don't think we're that different. I wouldn't say Canadians are like Americans, but I also wouldn't say Americans are like Canadians. To me, there there is some North America duality. It's just I didn't realize the step I was making. And luckily, you know, when you make a country your home, it tends to become your home real quickly. And I felt that when I moved to Alaska, and I would still say the move to Alaska was far more different in terms of making a big move than the move to Canada. Because uh, I felt at home here, you know, basically since I arrived. Now, Jack, it's been 11 years since you moved west up to Edmonton. Yeah. Um, well, I didn't move west. I moved east and south. Remember, I was in Alaska. <laughs> right, okay. Now, did weren't you driving a Cadillac when you first got here? No. Are you kidding me? What am I, 80 years old? No, I was, I was driving an Acura. Okay, wrong yeah. guy. Yeah, no, wrong guy. Trust me. Well, no, kind of Cadillacs are cool. Let's, let's, you no, don't have to be- they're cool now, but when I moved here, I was in my mid-30s. I, would, I wouldn't be driving around a Cadillac. <laughs> now, now, <Sure>. maybe. <laughs> okay, wait, wait, wait. 11 years in, oh, oh, hang on, 11 years in, you're, yeah. The team is in a different place, and yep. you're in a different place. 11 years on the air with Bob Stoffer, who's a guy who's been around the team for a while. 11 years sort of carving out your own niche in this market. Um, how do you feel about where you're at right now, Jack? I, you know, I'm ecstatic. I, but I, I think when... I think when you take the path that I did, and had to do. I mean, it's not the path I chose, but it's the path that I was thrust into. And I think you have a deeper appreciation uh, for being in the place I'm in right now. And the place I'm in right now is I'm covering a National Hockey League team. I can honestly tell you that your worst day covering a major league sport is your best day, is better than your best day covering a minor league sport. It just is. I mean, I, it's everything I hoped it would be. Um, I call nearly a, a thousand games of, of minor pro hockey. And if you include, you know, stuff I did in, in terms of high school and college stuff, I, I mean, I've, I've probably called 13, 1400 games to get here. And it's, it's been fantastic. It really has. I, I can honestly say, and I'm not trying to pat myself on the back here, but I think I appreciate being in the NHL as much as anyone that's attached to the NHL. I really do. And it's, and it's because of all those, those hours on the road to getting here. And uh, I don't take it for granted. I don't. And, I, again, that sounds very self-serving and self-congratulatory, but I mean it. it, it um, being where I'm at means a lot to me. It, it, it really does. You've had the pleasure of working with Bob Stoffer, and now you also get Louis DeBrusque going from radio to television back and forth. These two guys, uh, they certainly, well, one's played the game at an extremely high level of the NHL. Bob actually is a better hockey player than a lot of people could imagine, but he's an encyclopedia. Talk about working with those two guys. 
Do we want to hit pause and then have a second episode? Oh, we'll, we'll do Bob in the second episode. And I, I can talk about Louie in this one. Um, no, in all honesty, you know, I, I could say this. Um, there's the Jimi Hendrix experience and there's the Bob Stoffer experience. <laughs> and I, and I mean that as look, I know you guys have a long history with Bob, but you don't know him as well as I do. Sorry. You just don't. Um, Bob and I have had a lot of, a lot of time together. Um, not as much social time together, but you know, Bob and I have become in a weird way. It's the most unique friendship I've ever had in the sense that we don't spend time socially together, but we are also not at each other's throats. Um, we have had some knockdown drag outs. Absolutely. Because the one thing about me, you know, is I am a little like Bob in the sense that I ain't backing down either. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons our partnership has worked is because there's checks and balances even for Bob. And, uh, but Bob has also had to deal with me. I mean, I'm a strong personality too. And that's the other thing is, you know, people say, well, you know, Bob's a very strong personality. Well, Bob has to deal with me too. You know, I'm not the easiest person in the world either. Uh, just ask my family or anyone who knows me for any stretch of time. It's a very unique partnership in the sense you've got um, two people who think they know more than anything else, anyone else in the room. I mean, I'm, I've got to admit I'm guilty of that, too. My dad is guilty of that. Uh, you know, whenever my dad starts prattling on about how he was a better student and I just manipulated people into getting good grades, I'll say, well, read the transcript. Who did better? I mean... You know, so there's, and, and Bob and I are like that too. Uh, it is a very unique relationship. It's, uh, I, I'm almost at this point, you know, kind of proud to say, look, you know, I, I know Bob. Uh, he wouldn't have said that. I, I know him inside and out. I, I maybe know him better than he knows himself. And he could probably say the same thing about me. It is a, it's a unique uh, friendship. It is a working friendship. It's not like we're going on holidays together. But Bob and I, over 11 years, are we're in a better place now than we've ever been. And that is just part of working with someone as closely and intensely as we do. Because we both care about it. Uh, I think, you know, other people have worked together for a long time, too. I'm not saying that. But uh, we both care about what we believe in passionately, and um, it's a, it's a it's a it's a fascinating. I think it's a fascinating. There's there's a book to be had. Uh, Louis is, you know, he's the opposite of me and Bob. Uh, he doesn't have a negative word to say about anyone. He's too nice. There's a Seinfeld where he's reluctant to date this girl because she's too good. I know what Louie did for a living, but he is the nicest guy on the planet. He's sickening. He's so nice. Um, <laughs> you know, he, he's a perfect counterbalance to me. Um, he's, uh, he's just a jolly guy. Um, 
you know, and, and, and another, and another friend in a, in a very different way. Um, but I am, I'm, uh, I'm really glad that, uh, I have the two partners I do. Um, they've been, they've been better for me. Uh, they've made me a better person. Um, you know, I, I went in like so many people when they're 18, I go into college and come out a different person and much more open-minded. And I would say the same thing about my two working relationships with Bob and Louie. I've gone into them as one person and I've come out a better person. And I like the one that came out better than the one that went. I guess we better talk quickly about what's been happening here over the trade deadline. The Oilers making really one, one major move. And I, how do you see the uh, Kulikov move? I see it much the same. I mean, I don't have anything real insightful to say as far as that yeah. goes. I think I think what the Oilers decided was this is an upgrade on what we already have. And by that, I mean basically Caleb Jones and William Lagos. Uh Chris Russell and Darnell Nurse are going to continue to play on the left side. Kulikov's going to slot in. I think the one thing that hasn't been talked about as much is there is some flexibility that I see there if Dave Tippett elects to do it. Dave Tippett on numerous occasions this year have talked about how valuable Ethan Bear is when he's playing at his best. And I still think he probably played his best last year, not this year. Mm-hmm. A couple of times, you know, just as his game is rounded into form, he get, you know, he had that setback when he got hit with a puck against Toronto at home. Um, so what I mean by the flexibility of Freeman Kulikov is if he wanted to get Bear going, he has the option of moving maybe Bear up with Nurse and having Barry and Kulikov as a second pairing, and then you keep Russell and Larson intact. If you want to close out games late in the game, you can you can go to Nurse Larson, which he often does. But then again, Kulikov and Barry isn't a bad option if you need that if you need that second shift. Uh, or Kulikov and Bear, if Bear gets up to speed by playing with Nurse to bring his game up. Uh, if there's an injury on the right side and you don't feel comfortable with Bouchard having been on the shelf for so long, you can move Kulikov to the right side and then insert Lagesson or Jones as a third pair guy because Kulikov at times played on the right side when Winnipeg's Troika, Bufflin, Truba, and Myers was banged up. Kulikov can play almost anywhere. And as a top four D-man for the bulk of his career, I, I think it's, you know, from an Oilers perspective, it's an upgrade on what they already have. And that's the reason they made the move. And that's probably the reason they didn't make a move with a forward is because they didn't feel like it was a significant upgrade on what they already had. And, and Ken Holland kind of alluded to that. Fact. Yeah. Jack, uh, this has been a, obviously this whole last year has been something none of us have have, have gone through. Um, I know everybody's dying to get back to the new normal if we can't get back to the old normal. But this fan base here has been so spoiled over the last years. In my mind, they had the last true dynasty in the National Hockey League in the Oilers. Uh, the Hall of Fame is full of guys who were either the greatest player of all time or darn close to it and some of the others like the Messiers and, and the Coffees. Now we've got Connor McDavid here. Man, I tell you what, to have that in the same lifetime is unbelievable. 
Uh, and Leon Dreisaitl, who's not exactly uh, the consolation prize here. We're in the we're in their primes now, Jack. You, you don't control this, and and really, uh, you know, it can go a lot of ways. But this fan base has waited a long time to return to some, at least some of the success they saw with those great teams. Where are we along that road? At least getting back to playing for a cup like the team did in 06 and and getting back to being that contender, if not winner. Well, I, I think, you know, Edmonton, a lot, you know, a lot of people, you know, look at, uh, you know, Crosby entering the league in 05 and 06 and, and then playing for a cup in 07, 08. This has been more of an experience along the lines of Mary Lemieux and Michael Jordan, both of whom entered their respective leagues in 1984 and both of whom won their first championship in 1991, seven year process. Mm -hmm. And in the case of Lemieux's penguins, they didn't even make the playoffs the year before they won the cup in 90. Mm -hmm. Uh, They missed out in a real dogfight in in what was then the Patrick division. Uh, The Oilers, I think are in that stage. They're in uh, the 88, 89 penguins and bulls for that matter. That's where they're at. Um, they're they're there they're not quite there they're in the not quite there stage Uh, now again there's no guarantee that they're going to become the 91 Bulls or Pickles but that's where they're at if you're asking me where they're at I I would use again different sports to make the analogy I would say they're the 88 89 Bulls and Penguins Uh, they're close they're getting there, especially if they get this kind of goaltending. I mean, that's made a big difference this year. That's probably one of three or four games that they should have lost uh, is how good Mike Smith has been. Um, but I, my hunch is, uh, my hunch is while they may, may very well come out of the north, uh, there's still one more hurdle, hurdle to clear before they get pushed over the top. And I have to confess, I'm not smart enough to tell you what that what that ingredient is. Is it a Jordan Stallish type player on the 09 Penguins? Maybe that's it. I, I don't know, uh, but that would be that would be my first guess. Is just a little bit more uh, beef and production somewhere down the lineup and down the middle. It's would funny. Be my guess. It's funny you should say that, too, because as a guy, I grew up watching the games as season ticket holders with my dad. So one of my favorite yeah. moments was being in the seats with my dad in 84, watching that cup and watching my dad and watching his reaction to winning. But it was the Willie Lindstrom's and the Ken Linsman's. Uh, you know, you could look at all these other players who were bottom six McTavish guys. later on. McTavish oh, abso- later on. Absolutely. On the Rangers too, yeah. Yeah, the, just those little those little pieces, not the big pieces, they're already in place. So I think we're uh, going to have a big summer coming up here. It's got to be a big summer for Ken Holland, don't you think? Well, I mean, he's he's finally going to get some cap relief. He'll have even more the year after that. I, you know, that's that's where you backfill, right? Um, yeah. You know, and, and so... I think Ken Holland is, and look, at the risk of sounding like an Oiler apologist, I think he's done about as well as he could considering he's had no money. Yeah, He's had no money for two years. Uh, now, not everything has worked out, 
you know, after the seed didn't work out, Kyle Turris to this point hasn't worked out. I still think there's a glimmer of hope with Turris. Uh, maybe he's just going to be that, you know, a playoff player. I don't know. Because, I mean, everyone keeps talking about, well, right-handed shot, third-line center. That's why they went out and got Turris. And, and, I, and when he did that, I thought it was going to work. I'm hopeful it still might work. Maybe it's not. Maybe, you know, when, when, um, you know, when Nashville had the tough year, I didn't think that Turris, Duchesne, and Johansson were done um, as, as lead players in the league. But, I, you know, maybe, maybe they are. I don't know. Uh, I still think there's hope for Kyle Turris. And, and I'm, I'm banking that, that uh, I'm banking he's going to get a few more shots here. Whether he takes advantage of them remains to be seen. But that's, for me, a, a real key piece is if they were able to get a guy like that going at the right time. Long overdue. It's been way too long to get you on. And thank you for all your time today. It's been some great stories. The, the, How did I do? Was I worth it? Or was, no, this, it, uh, you was were. this one where there's a lot of editing? No, no, there'll be no editing to this. <laughs> but the best part, the best ones for us are where we just go. And we just went all over the place. It's the all-terrain vehicle of interviews. And uh, I, I love that kind of stuff. And thanks for your time, man. I appreciate it. Always a pleasure, guys. Okay, there you go. Jack Michaels from the Edmonton Oilers radio and television broadcasts. We knew this was going to go a little long today because he is a uh, interesting dude. And we want to thank him for his time today. Hey, by the way, we were talking off the top about the fact that this is uh, podcast 54. And then we went off on this tangent about car 54. Where are you? You mentioned yeah. Martin Milner. That show was Adam 12. And yeah. Kent McCord was his co his sidekick his co-star in that show. But I did look up while we uh, were in a bit of a break there. Car 54, where are you? That was a TV comedy sitcom from 1961. I was two. And uh, <laughs> I don't remember anything of it, but I do. It's interesting to note that Fred Gwynn was the star who went on to become Herman Munster, right? Yes. His yes. sidekick was Al Lewis, who ended up becoming... Grandpa Monster on the Monsters. Now that show I remember, and the other guy was Joey Ross, who was the other guy who was on that show. I, I, like I said, I'd have to look it up. I I had to look it up. So uh, anyway, we've covered our bases on that. Now, be honest, you just had a thing for Lily Monster, right? Uh, Canadian Yvonne DiCarlo. Was she yes. not from New Westminster? Was she? Not I from, think you're right. I think she was from British Columbia, and she was also. Moses's wife in the Ten Commandments, which was on this uh, past weekend. It's a movie. <laughs> it's a movie that's rather lengthy. I could have done with just five of the ten, uh, but it's uh, it's uh, you know it. Uh, Yule Brenner was fantastic in it, etc., etc., etc. Anyway, that's pretty much it. I don't know anything you want to touch on that we haven't. Uh, we talked about a lot of things today with Jack. That's for sure. Do you, well, do you like the Dmitry Kulikov uh, thing that they did at the trade deadline? That's the only really thing the Oilers did. Yeah, I do, just because it addresses a need. It's not spectacular. It's not sexy. 
But what it does, I wrote an item about it in Oilers Nation, and I, I, I say it as this, Bryn, and again, when we're talking about Car 54 showing that we are truly old men, uh, the old saying, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Uh, William Lagason and Caleb Jones on that left side may one day be fine National Hockey League defensemen. Might be, but they aren't there yet. Yeah. What we know about Dmitry Kulikov is he is a reliable top four defenseman right now. And if you're talking about their chances of getting something done in the playoffs right now, he's exactly the guy they need instead of throwing one of the other two in and crossing your fingers. And I've always been a believer that the real work for Ken Holland would be done this coming summer, not at this trade deadline, and I still believe that. I think it's a huge summer coming up for the Edmonton Oilers. Calgary Flames, I was surprised. I know they sent Sam Bennett to Florida, but they didn't really show to me that they were a buyer or a seller, and I don't see them catching Montreal at this point, so I don't know what they're doing unless they were told to, you know, touch the brakes a little bit. We'll figure it out in the summer. That would not be good news for Brad Trailiving, in my estimation, for longevity. Am I seeing that wrong? No, I think you're seeing it right. They are, uh, if they're not gone now, they're gone in 60 seconds to borrow from the uh, movies. The flames aren't getting in. Um, it's not going to happen. I know mathematically it can, but that early bounce they got with Daryl down there, Daryl Sutter, um, that's a long time ago. They've been terrible uh, since that 3-0 and run they put on, and they just don't have enough runway to get it done. They're, you know, I think they've got 15 games left. Montreal has games in hand. They're not going to get it done, so there's going to be some things happening this offseason, uh, not only here, but down the road in Calgary. You can bet on that. We've got to wrap this up by telling everybody The Outsiders is brought to you by the McIntosh Group at REMAX River City. You know, we've been talking about a little bit about the trading deadline. Well, it's a good time to trade your current home for a larger one. So if you're really interested, get a hold of Brent or any of his team at 780-464-0075 or at mcintoshgroup.ca. Had a long discussion with Brent. The Edmonton market is really doing exceptionally well right now. But that will kind of uh, tail off a little bit as we get toward the summer. And interest rates are really low. So don't hesitate to get a hold of Brent or anybody, whether you're a buyer or a seller, get a hold of the Macintosh Group at REMAX River City. You can email us, by the way. We love the feedback. Our email address is theoutsiders at shaw.ca. You can also check us out on Twitter. The handle's really simple. It's at Outsiders2020. And also make sure that you tell your friends to subscribe or follow us and uh, pick up our RSS feed on any of your favorite ear candy sites like Apple, Google, Spotify, Pocket Casts, et cetera, et cetera. And we're also now on YouTube again, which is great. And we're getting feedback off of our YouTube feed, which is fantastic. Your support is greatly appreciated. We've, uh, we've really, the feedback that I've been getting and, and Robin, I know you've been getting some as well is great and we love it. And, uh, we, I think the thing that I'm enjoying the most is that we're trying not to be, uh, uh, re, we're trying to be more generalist in our conversations. The, the one today is a classic example. Uh, this question's about Jack and how he got started that I'm as interested in as I would be how the Oilers did at the draft deadline. There's plenty of podcasts that are, 
addressing that. But it's kind of fun to talk about sports, all sports with guys like Jack, isn't it? Well, absolutely. And again, as we touched on, you know, when I see a picture of Jack Michael sitting at the uh, uh, counter with Steven Tyler of Aerosmith, you go, tell us what that's about. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. those are the fun roads to go down. They're not well-traveled roads, but uh, uh, I love hearing things that not only our listeners haven't heard, but that I haven't heard. Uh, that, to me, is what makes it interesting. The, the one thing that he's got the goatee going, and he does remind me a lot of Ravine these days and and, and for and once again you might have to if you're of a certain vintage you might have to you might have to google the amazing ravine or was that the amazing Creskin? one of those i just trust me on this just just google ravine r was it r a v e e n anyway no it was r e v e e n so now we've gone all car 54 oh my god uh, and re- and ravine on people. I think it's time for us to get back to the home. I think it is. And you know what? Tonight, is, this is an unusual show because we waited an extra day. It's t- it's tapioca night at the home tonight. So I'm really excited <laughs> about that. And this is the day when I traditionally just change my underwear every Tuesday. Thanks, oh, thanks for sharing okay, that. That's way too much information. Uh, thank you, everybody, for being with us. I hope you enjoyed it, Rob, and we'll talk to you next week. You sure will. See you. Storm in the castle. <laughs>